following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Let's get into our Bibles. And uh, we're still working through our series, Never Better. Uh, The big idea being that the book of Hebrews is leading us through this idea that Jesus is superior to everyone else in terms of who is worthy of worship, who is worthy to be trusted. And because of Jesus, those who belong to him have never been better. Uh, and, and that even taking into account that maybe there's things in your life that are difficult right now. And maybe from one perspective, you could say, well, it seems like things were better at another point in my life, even maybe before I was a follower of Jesus. But in, in the ways that it matters most, no human will ever be better than when they're in connected relationship to God through Christ. And of course, that means the adverse is also true. And so that's kind of the, the theme we've been working off of and tracking verse by verse this uh, author's uh, treaties, let's say. Um, this, this reads very much like a sermon, um, maybe less like a letter until you get to the end, but uh, that's, that's what we're doing. We're in Hebrews 4. So Uh, So far, Hebrews 1 through 3, the author has shown us that Jesus is better than all the other prophets, shown us that Jesus is better than angels, and even went so far as to say Jesus is better than Moses. And then as an implication out of all of that, last week we read a warning against having an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. And we were given the example of those who died in the wilderness instead of going into the promised land to be an example of of what the author means by an evil, unbelieving heart. And so if you're not familiar with that story, I'll just quickly tell you that the people of God were enslaved in Egypt for roughly 400 years. God calls Moses, you may remember the burning bush, uh, calls Moses to go into Egypt, tell Pharaoh, those are my people and I want them free to worship me. And so there's then 10 plagues because Pharaoh is, you know, a a jack wagon and doesn't want to do it. And, uh, but he ends up convinced by the end of the 10 plagues. And so then the people of God go out of Egypt, make it to the Red Sea. You know, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's going to come after him. Red Sea parts. People of God go across. It closes back on the Egyptians. They are now in what is commonly referred to as the wilderness, where God leads them in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, provides for them with uh, manna to eat and, and water from places where you wouldn't expect water, begins to teach them this lesson about reliance upon him. Then the promise is that he's going to take them into a land for them to possess, a land that is often called his rest, this promised land. They, they get up to the edge of it, and uh, instead of just kind of taking God at his word, they decide, you know, we need to send some people in here to see what they think. So they send 12 spies. Two come back, Joshua and Caleb, say, yep, I mean, I don't know what, what we're doing. God said we could do it. Let's go. The other 10 are like, ooh, man big people over there. They look tougher than us. I don't think we can do it. I don't think it's going to happen. And uh, the, the generation in that time, the congregation of the people of Israel, side with the 10 spies, decide to operate in fear instead of trust in God. God lets them know as a result of that unbelief, that evil, unbelieving heart, you are not going to enter my rest. And you can, you can think about that, like, oh man, that seems so harsh. Why would God do that? But friends, you've got to understand 
he was already preparing them for the reality of what that rest was. And it was clear that they really didn't want it because the manna and the water and the guiding by a cloud and by fire, all of this was, was primarily teaching these people that your whole existence is dependent upon me. Reliance upon me is the key here. Belief that I'm going to do what I've said I'm going to do is the thing. And if you don't want to live like that, I can't force you. And so they died out in the wilderness. That's the evil, unbelieving heart. That's what we're being warned against at the end of chapter 3. And then that line of thinking continues now into chapter 4. We're going to tackle all of chapter 4 today. Don't be scared. We will get to lunch, I promise. Uh, But we are going to do some serious work today, okay? So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 4. That's verses 1 through 16, okay? Here we go. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just has been said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far of the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with whom, of him who, with whom we have to do or whom we're going to give an account to. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God for his word. Clear as mud, just about. Yeah, right, okay. It can definitely feel that way uh, on first approach, but I'm telling you, man, this is precious. This is, this is the, the, the gold here doesn't give itself up easily, but I'm telling you, man, there's, there's a key to the kingdom in here, several. And so let's work through it and, and, and understand the word of God and then see how it is it applies. So the first thing I want to address is that I know some of you may have be thinking that you just found your favorite chapter in the whole Bible, you may have noticed the word rest or rested appears 10 times in these 16 verses. And I I know there's some of you that have been looking for some verses on naps. And so you you could be thinking, oh, yes, Lord, these are my verses in the name of Jesus. I accept this word, right? You could be 
Do you see how many times that said rest? Right, because I know some of you like naps. And that's, you know, look, I'm not against naps. And neither is God, right? Jesus took naps, so we know that a nap can be taken to the glory of God. Let me, let me hear the church say amen. It's okay. That's all right. I'm not here after your naps today, all right? It's okay. And I'll say, as a matter of fact, restful sleep can be one possible, one possible indicator that we have grasped the principles of rest being talked about here. Because the big work we have today is to understand what is the rest of God? What is his rest? What, is this, what does he talk about? My rest. What is that? Well, we're going to get into it. Uh, the, but the point I want to make sure here before we launch into that is, is that being good at naps or vacation or leisure is not necessarily a surefire sign that you have grasped the fullness of truth being taught here. And, and we could come short of it thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really good at chilling, <laughs> right? Hebrews 4, well, there's, <laughs> there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, this is about much more than physical or even mental rest. Not, not that those are bad things. Um, we have a body. We have to steward it well. We should rest. Sleep is a part of how we take care of the body God gave us. Uh, we should be mindful of, you know, kind of our, our mental space, and, and there's nothing wrong with taking time to take care of that. But this is about much, much more than that. So let's not stop short of thinking that this is, Hebrews 4 is basically, you know, the, the manual for self-care. Because right? that's really not even in the ballpark of what this is addressing and what the rest of God is really about. This is about his rest. This is, what, this is about what God calls my rest. Okay? And, and right off the rip, right? this talks about us sharing in the same kind of rest that God took at the end of creation. Okay? So this can't just be about you being really good at, at vacation. Okay? All right? it's, it's more than that. So, this, this rest is, is something that shapes us down to the very core of our being, all right? So let's take it verse by verse and, and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. In verse 1, we see a warning. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. And so that's fairly self-explanatory. I don't, I don't think it's gotten too hard to understand yet. The bottom line is here, don't come short of the rest of God. I mean, and I, I started out with all the, all the jokey jokes about physical rest just to make sure we don't come short of what we're talking about that way. But there's other ways that you could come short of it. Don't underestimate it. Don't assume you already have the fullness of it. Because by the end of this, we're going to figure out that none of us are walking in the fullness of it. Because we're not perfect yet. And, and that's going to be obvious as we move Forward. Verse 2 is going to show us how we could come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. So remember, the they, this is a continuation of chapter 3. The they in view is the, the people of God, the children of Israel in the wilderness. Okay? They had good news preached to them. There is a promised land for you. I'm going to take you there. It's full of milk and honey. I'm going to take care of you. They had, they had good news that as far as their eye could see and understand, this is, this is what the salvation that they needed. What they, their context of salvation was getting out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? And all of this, God was doing something with those people at that time that mattered, but also what he was doing was painting a picture that would foreshadow a freedom to come, a salvation to come from a, an enemy and a slavery even greater than Egypt. 
that being sin and death and all the works of the devil. Okay? So, that's the they. For indeed, we have good news preached to us. The good news preached to us is the good news of Christ's gospel, that though we are sinners, that though none of us deserve uninhibited relationship with God, that he's made that possible through the life and death, resurrection of Christ, that if we will come to him by faith, we can enter into rest as well. But the word they heard, so, so they've heard good news, we've heard good news, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is key. It, it's not enough simply to hear the good news. There is a uniting, some of your translations will say a mixing of faith. If you really dig into what that is pointing at, it's, it's akin to digestion. It's akin to that mixing is like when you take food and mix it with the saliva in your mouth and then that whole you know, jumble of fun goes down the throat into the, the, the tummy juices, then it all gets dissolved. And why? why? Why all that process? Because it's not until that process happens that that's broken down to its essential parts, the nutrients that then can go into your bloodstream and do what? Benefit you. If, if you just gobbled a bunch of styrofoam whole that your body can't produce, I mean, not only is it going to stop you up, you're going to have different problems, but even if that wasn't the case, you're going you're to die of malnutrition. But I'm eating. That'd be the equivalent to having good news preached to you or you hearing good news and not having faith united with it, not having faith mixed with it. It does no good. Faith is the key, okay? Faith is the key to the good news being good news. Faith is the key to the good news having the effect that the Lord wants it to have, okay? So that's the warning. Don't come short of it. How do we come short of it? By a lack of faith, by having evil, unbelieving hearts. He's still talking about the same thing. He's just, he's just doing it a different way. He's reinforcing the idea. You might say, oh man, well, this, this seems kind of elementary. Well, it, it's not because at one level it's not because the, the whole idea that um, because we've come to faith one time or we have mixed faith with, with the hearing of good news one time uh, or even many times that, that, that that process is done. Because in the same way that you need to continue to take food into your body and have it mixed with the things in your body that breaks it down and, and then it has a benefit for you, the word of God, the good news, the truth of God, the promises of God, we need that also in a, in a continual way. And so even if some of what we're encountering today would seem to you uh, basic, would seem to you, I mean, that's, that's basic gospel. The whole idea that the gospel is, is the ABCs of Christianity is a total mistake. The gospel is the A to Z. The gospel is the whole thing. And that's oftentimes what people miss. Really, what we're doing in the rest of the Bible is figuring out how do we live in light of the A to Z, the greatness of the gospel. How do we, how do we take that precious jewel that is the gospel and turn it one more time in the light of God's glory so that once again we can stand with mouths open in awe of yet another facet of God's goodness and mercy being poured out upon us. Another thing he thought of that we never would have. Another problem he solved before we even realized it was a problem. Amen. That's a God, that's a God you ought to be excited about worshiping. Amen. So verses 3 through 5 will move us into the next idea. For we who have believed enter that rest. Okay, What's going to keep you out of it? Lack of belief, lack of faith. What's going to bring you into it? Believing, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
So again, he's talking about the people of, of, that didn't believe, had evil, unbelieving hearts in the wilderness, didn't come into the promised land. But if you believe, you enter the rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So now he makes this pivot away from talking about what was going on with the children of Israel and, and the, the, that time they didn't go into the promised land, okay, before the 40 years of wandering. And now he, now he pivots to this idea of, although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and that's not because this guy didn't necessarily know his Bible. He obviously, from you just take this letter from uh, chapter by chapter, you understand this guy really knew uh, his, his Hebrew Bible. But you also have to remember that in antiquity, the scrolls and stuff, they weren't broke up in chapter and verse. So that's why he's not like, hey, in Genesis 2, right? So it said somewhere, you know, said in the word of God, uh, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And so here's, now, now we're seeing this pivot to the idea of this, this rest that we're being called to being like the rest God took. So we're, 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 getting, we're getting more data to be able to put shape to what is my rest? What is his rest? What is he talking about? This is more than naps because God doesn't nap. God's calling us to participate in the kind of rest that he had at the end of creating the world. So what do we know about that? Well, first of all, I think it's important to say, uh, and this, this principle is, is going to be a drum we're going to bang on for the, the, the rest of this sermon, and some of you are going to like it and some of you aren't, and that's okay. But uh, the rest of God did not mean a cessation of activity. God didn't stop day seven and go, that was hard. I'm going to take a break. <laughs> That's not what the rest of God was day seven. Understand. We're talking about an infinite God that, that with his words, because he wanted to, and he was so full of love that he wanted to create a place for a people to live, said, let there be light, and on and on and on. He didn't break a sweat. Okay? This is an infinite, eternal God. All-powerful. Okay? Creation didn't tax him. The rest was not like, just give me a minute and then we'll move on to the next thing. Right? Wasn't because he was tired. This rest of God. So if God's not tired, that's not why it says he rested on the seventh day. He didn't need a break. Then what, what is, why does the Bible say that? Why are we told that God rested on the seventh day? God's rest on the seventh day looked less like fatigue and more like confidence in the completion of the task of creating. He did it all, said, that's good, I'm done. So I'm going to rest from that. It didn't mean that God stopped doing things. Because, continue to read, right? God keeps doing things. That's a primary difference between uh, somebody that believes what the Bible teaches and, and somebody that maybe more has a deist idea. There's this idea out there that, that God created things, just kind of spun the world into motion and said, I'm going to stand back now and see what happens. Nope. <laughs> the, the Bible would, would fly in the face of that idea. God has been intimately and intricately involved in everything, and his sovereign hand is over everything. That idea is part of why we can join him in that rest. So it's, it's, it's not about stopping activity. It's not about needing a break. The rest of God came out of a confidence 
that the, the, the task was completed. The seventh day, I don't need to do any more creating. I already created. It's good. It's perfect. It's done. It's finished. Okay? God did not cease all activity, but rested from the work of creation because it was done. That's important. Now, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, so remember, all these quotations, uh, God rested from the seventh day, that's Genesis, but they shall not enter my rest, and then today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's, he's, quoting, he's been quoting the mess out of Psalm 95 ever since chapter 3, right? He's really, he's basing a lot of his theological argument here on the contents of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 written by David. So, and so he's arguing from the psalm, he's arguing from the scriptures this idea, okay? Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest is himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Okay, so again, in case it wasn't clear, the, the, it seems like there's this weird pivot to talking about God resting on the seventh day in creation, but it's because he's, he's making this point. The rest God is calling you to is like the rest God took on the seventh day. Okay, so again, not as a result of fatigue, but as a result of completion. This, so first of all, let's just say this. All of this wasn't just about the promised land, okay? This, this whole, everything he's talking about here, the promised land itself and God orchestrating history to happen as it happened, what he was doing then wasn't just about then. It's not that those people didn't matter and God wasn't doing a specific thing with them that was important in the time. It was, but in the same way that the whole law was a tutor to lead us to Christ, this whole drama coming out of going into Egypt, being enslaved in Egypt, which God told Abraham was going to happen, right? So God, it wasn't like this was a surprise. Them going into Egypt, them coming out of Egypt, them being in the wilderness, God providing for them the way he does in the wilderness, then God taking them into the promised land and how that all plays out. All of that really, in, in large part, was to, to teach them, which they did a subpar job much of the time getting the lesson, but also to teach us who often do a subpar job getting the lesson about what the rest of God is. What it is to be brought into this rest that Hebrews 4 is hammering like an anvil. So this is, this is not just a nothing. This ain't a throwaway Sunday. So I hope to God, those that may, maybe are traveling this week or serving somewhere, I mean, this is an important key, man, to us working through this book and honestly to understanding the entirety of what it means for you to walk with God. Right here, man, this is big. So it wasn't just about the promised land. The promised land was a picture of the rest of God, which would only be fully realized in Christ. The promised land wasn't even the fullness. The promised land was also a tutor, just like the law to, for us to look back on and learn and to prepare the people of God for what was coming. The true rest that Christ was going to provide. And that also gives, us, gives shape to what it is we're being invited into here. So we see from that that the rest of God is not perpetual leisure. It is walking in full faith and assurance of His power and goodness 
and faithfulness to his promises. Can I say that again? Because I just defined the rest of God for you. So if you fell asleep on me, perk up. This, this is a big deal right here. Okay? The rest of God is not perpetual leisure. It is walking in full faith and assurance of his power and goodness and faithfulness to his promises. That is the rest of God. Now, <clears throat> what we're seeing in that is that, so you, you look at the, the wilderness, you look at the promised land, you look at their inability to trust that God would do what he said he's going to do, so that generation dies, but then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And all of that being wrapped around this idea of this, this invitation into the rest of God, we, we understand that the rest of God is it's really about reliance on God. And we're going to take time to unpack that by example and as deep as I can think of to, to really kind of put flesh on those bones. But at the, at the bottom of it, the rest of God is about reliance on God. And trying to think about uh, an example for that. And, you know, this, it's a little goofy, but I think maybe helpful. So, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. I know some of you are like, we haven't even done halloween yet, and don't talk to me about Thanksgiving. But some of you are just itching to get the Christmas tree out. So there's all kinds of manic weirdness here on different angles. Amen? So, hallelujah. But let's just think about Thanksgiving for a minute, okay? Who, you know, if, if whether you are or aren't somebody that would typically be tasked with cooking the Thanksgiving meal, let's just say you are in this instance. So it's on you to make Thanksgiving meal. And you're going to have some guests for Thanksgiving that you don't normally have. Um, what, whatever would make you the most nervous, that's what I want you to think about. So I don't care if it's, you know, some uh, state senator or the president himself, or I don't care who, or some, some relative you have that's really picky about dry turkey, okay? Whatever would have you just really geeked out about the fact that I got to cook this Thanksgiving dinner and it's got to be good. Uh, uh, that's what I want you to think about, okay? So the, the, the mental, spiritual position you would be in coming up to that, how you would, uh, how you, the, the weight that you would feel as Thanksgiving approached and you knew, man, I got to, this, this is on me. Now, feel all that, right? And, and, and think about what that would be like. But then... You, you, get, uh, you get a letter in the mail, and, and the letter is letting you know that Gordon Ramsay and Martha Stewart, and just to make things more fun, Snoop Dogg, are all going to come on Thanksgiving and help you cook Thanksgiving dinner for these very important guests. You got Gordon Ramsay coming, you got Martha Stewart coming, and Snoop's going to be there. Keep everybody chill, Right? How has the situation changed about how you're going to feel about it? And why? Because, because you know now, we got Martha and Gordon in the kitchen. I'm going to be able to rely on their skills that I don't have. What's going to happen is, I'm, I'm going to be able to help. I might be involved. I might, get to, I might even be able to kind of, kind of lead the thing. But at any point that I'm doing something wrong, at any point that I'm about to mess this thing up, at any point where I'm above my depth, Martha and Gordon are going to get me out of it, and this turkey's going to be fly, and this stuffing's going to be great, and these sweet potatoes are going to light the table on fire, right? What, what am I even talking about here? I'm talking about the difference between you relying on yourself every single day and learning what it means to rest and rely on God. 
and, and our hope is that we get even greater relief thinking about the entirety of what it means to live as humans. That's your Thanksgiving dinner. And understand, having God say, I'm going to be with you, just like the, the trio I, I talked about, I'm feeling even better about having God helping me in those ways than I do even Gordon, Martha, and Snoop. Amen? The rest of God is really about reliance on God. It's really what we're being drawn into here. And to think of it in that way takes it somewhat out of the realm of, well, you need to trust God more. And, hey man, think about how awesome it would be if you trusted God. Think about how awesome it would be if you genuinely, really, truly relied on Him in all the ways that He's willing to let you rely on you'd be freaked out a little less about Thanksgiving dinner, wouldn't you? And all the things that have you freaked out in your life right now. Whatever's going on with your marriage, whatever's going on with your kids, or, or the fact that you want to be married and you're not, or what, whatever it is, job stuff, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's impending weight that you're like, man, the stakes are so high and it's all on me. Well, it doesn't have to be. Because we already got the letter that said God will show up. We already got the letter that said he's right here saying, lean on me. I was going to title this sermon, Jesus and Chill, but then I realized chill means something else now, so I can't, I got to come up with a different title. Y'all heathens ruined that word. Mm-mm-mm. Now, some of you could be thinking as I've taken apart the idea that perpetual leisure is what we're being invited to here and all of that, you could think, well, Pastor Vince, I just think you're a workaholic. I don't think you really like rest. And if I'm going to be totally honest and uh, transparent, um, you know, I've, <clears throat> I have, I've violated this principle as much as anybody, whether in my thinking or in my doing. So I'm not up here saying, hey, I've got this figured out. Come be like me. Uh, I, can't, I can't say, in this instance for sure, I can't say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Because this is really hard. It's, 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 it's amazing how difficult it is to rest in God. <laughs> it's amazing how much work it is to rest in God. Doesn't that seem paradoxical on its face? But it's true. Uh, so, but it's, this isn't, just that I don't like rest or I, I, I just want everybody to be working their fingers to the bone all the time because I think somehow that, that's the right answer. And so to, to evidence that, again, I'm, I'm, I, want, I want to biblically justify the idea that what God is talking about when he talks about his rest, my rest, come, partake of that, that he's not talking about what oftentimes we would end up thinking of when it comes to rest, right? Uh, uh, a hammock somewhere and, and a good long nap or even perpetual leisure. Like, you know, get into like the win the lottery conversations and I'd have an island and just, you know, whatever, whatever the kind of thing we think about. When we think about rest, that's, this is something totally different, deeper and better than that. Because one thing that'll help you is, is getting convinced that perpetual leisure actually isn't good for you. <laughs> um, why, why did he hearken back to creation to, to put our minds there? Well, think about, you know, <laughs> when God said it is good, everything was perfect. Sin had an in. 
And I've said this to you many times, but Adam and Eve had a purpose in the garden and a task. Adam named all the animals. They were to tend the garden. They, they had a purpose under God. They had a job. Okay? And so um, we really weren't designed for perpetual leisure. And, and I'm going to show you in a minute that even, you know, I, as much as anybody, I've been guilty of someone saying to me, hey, man, you should probably slow down, you know, like, relax a little bit. And, and how many, who can guess what I've said when someone says that to me? I'll rest when I'm dead, right? Isn't that what that's for? Well, I'm going to show you it's not, actually. <clears throat> so, to, to help take apart that idea that, that the rest of God is about perpetual leisure, or even in, in, in some iterations of, of how people talk about what it is God's calling us to, what it looks like to follow God, and what the rest of God would look like, what, what it means like to walk in our promised land, if you want to say it that way. Who can tell me the first major event after the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and they were in the promised land, right? So they're already, they're already kind of freaked out. The Jordan's flooding and whatever. So we got to trust God even to get across that little river. But then what's the first thing that happens in the promised land? They come up to Jericho, right? I just like making you guys nervous. It's fun to watch your faces when I pop Bible trivia on you like that. You're like, oh, what? Promised land? What was the first thing? It was Jericho. So what happened at Jericho? Well, Joshua sent spies, right? They met, they met Rahab and all that. But it, it, and here's, here's an interesting thing. You might think, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Wasn't the problem 40 years ago that they sent spies? When God said, just go do this and trust me, they sent spies in the land and decided they couldn't do it. So now, now they're sending spies into Jericho. Like, didn't we learn anything? Well, here's what's interesting. What why would God allow them to do that this time and not that time? Well, it, it wasn't even about what they needed to come do in terms of coming through Jericho to enter into the rest of the promised land. What they didn't know is them sending spies in. It, it wasn't even about that. It was really about them meeting Rahab because what they didn't know is that Rahab was going to meet Salmon and Salmon and Rahab were going to have a boy named Boaz and then Boaz was going to marry a girl named Ruth who was going to give birth to Obed who, gave birth, who, who had a wife and gave birth to Jesse who gave birth to David. They didn't know all the way back then. God's like, yeah, that's okay. You can send them spies in there. Oh, thank you, God. Because he's always doing stuff, man, that you don't even know about. It couldn't even be on your radar. That God was establishing a family line. And we know about Rahab. Here, we know about Rahab's reputation, right? And then, and then what's so Rahab and Salmon have a son named Boaz. And Boaz is then going to have to marry this Moabite woman who everyone else would think about the way people thought about Rahab. Do you think that was just a happy accident? You think God was moving with incredible sovereign power, itty-bitty details to have his will accomplished? That seems off focus. It is kind of, except I want you to trust in God's goodness and sovereignty and power and enter the rest that comes in it. I want you to have faith in him. So that's just another example of how you can trust him, even when you can't see from your vantage point right now what he's doing. The spies going into Jericho had no idea that, that, that because Rahab and her family was going to be saved, that then Boaz was going to be born, and then on down David was going to be born, which is kind of a key to the whole thing. Because out of David's line comes Christ himself, okay? All right, there you go. But here's, here's one. So they sent spies, but, but in the end, did they storm the city with military might and strategy and win the day? 
Is that how it happened? Did they go in and, and did the whole problem of Jericho, this giant walled fortress city that stands between them and the promised land that God has said is theirs, is, is, is what happened? They sent spies, they get good information, come back out. It's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You boys on the left flank, you boys on the right, we're going to run in here and we're going to use all our military might and Joshua's extreme military prowess and win the day. No. They did march around the city for seven days, though, surely looking like fools to everyone observing them. Why? Because God told them to. Because God said, this is what I want you to do. You do this, which makes no sense, and I'm going to handle the rest. Trust me. Faith. That's rest. Because here's what we do. It's like, God said, go to the promised land. Uh-oh, Jericho's in the way. What, what not resting in God looks like is like, okay, here we go. I'm about to take down Jericho. And then we want to shake our fist at God because we run into those big barred gates of Jericho, knock ourselves out. What happened, God? You told me. No, he didn't. Yeah, yeah, he, he did in his great mercy reveal to you that on the other side of Jericho is something for you, but man, you, you, you think you can rely on yourself for even five minutes between where you stand and where you're going in God? That's not the rest of God. The rest of God is knowing that every second I'm going to be reliant on his plan, his power, his goodness. Because if he goes with me, we're good. God kept telling them in the wilderness he was going to take them into the land flowing with milk and honey. This, this promised land would be the place of them entering his rest, didn't he? I'm going to take you to a land. It's flowing with milk and honey. You can enter my rest. I mean, over and over again. It keeps telling them that. But here's what I'm asking you. Did everyone, when they get to the promised land, do they cross the Jordan? And then what the Bible says happens is everyone pops out a hammock as soon as they cross the Jordan, and then God just sends angels to pour milk and honey into everyone's mouth. And now that's their existence. Yay, we made it to the promised land. We made it to God's rest. Hammock time. No, immediately there's a walled city to deal with. The rest of God is not perpetual leisure. The rest of God is not your best life now. The rest of God is not probably anything that you imagine it should be. The rest of God is full reliance and faith and trust and obedience to him, which is what humans were made for and the only place you're going to find what you're really looking for. I don't know if I am looking for that. Yeah, I know you don't know, but you are. No, they didn't lay in hammocks and have angels pour milk and honey in their mouths. They had to take the land from all the devil-worshipping inhabitants that were there. The rest of God did not mean, hey, we're not going to do anything. Which is part of why the writer took us to the idea that the rest of God is like the rest he took after the sixth day. On the seventh day. God, that doesn't mean God said, okay, hands off. I'm tired, you guys take over. God kept doing stuff, making sure his will is accomplished. They had to take the land from the devil-worshipping inhabitants that were there, but at no point could they just run in and do anything in their own strength or their own way. Every step of the way, they had to trust God and do it his way, by his power. 
That is what the rest of God looks like. And, and, and so just to make sure we, we all get that the promised land experience was a foreshadowing of the rest of God that would be found in Christ alone. He makes that clear in verses 8 through 10. Look at that again. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that, right? So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why does he say that? For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Who's he talking about who would have spoken? He's talking about David in Psalm 95 that he's quoting, talking about rest, talking about today is the day, don't harden your heart. They missed the rest of God, right? But, but his point is there is still a Sabbath rest. So think about the timeline. Joshua, 400-ish or so years, even before David is a, is a twinkle in his daddy's eye. Okay? So what's the point there? That the, his point is, Joshua bringing them into the promised land wasn't the fullness of the rest. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it isn't being in a geographical promised land. That's not the end of the story. There's more to it. There's, that was a foreshadowing. That was a training ground for leading us to be able to understand and identify what the real rest of God is that was going to come in Christ alone. That's, that's his whole point. That's what he's saying there. Joshua didn't, the whole thing wasn't, didn't happen in Joshua bringing them into the promised land. That's his point. He, wouldn't, he would not have spoken another day after that. He's talking about David 400 years later saying that. So you've got to think about the timeline. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Again, pointing you back to the idea. God resting after creation. This rest is going to be like that. What was God's rest about? It was rest in his own sovereignty. It was rest in his own perfection. It was rest in the whole idea. I did that. It's good. I can be done. Because I did it. And I am. Okay? We're invited in to rest like that. But except for the whole I am part, it's he is part. right? Like, not because I am, but because he is. Is why I get to rest like he did after creation. If he did it, if he's done it, I don't need to think about it too hard anymore. In terms of getting that done, doesn't mean I'm not going to walk in light of it. Doesn't mean I now have, don't have a task to do in light of what he's done. Okay? They got in the promised land, but there was still work to do. The question we get down to here is why? Why are you working? What's the motives? The rest of God sets us free from doing right things for wrong reasons. So he's quoting Psalm 95. That's written far after the events of the time of Joshua. It says there remains a Sabbath rest, but this Sabbath rest is like how God rested from his works of creation. Okay, we've already talked about that. To, to kind of summarize that idea, think about this connection. When God completed the work of creation, he said, it is good, and he rested. When Jesus completed the work of salvation on the cross, he said, it is finished, so we can rest in him. God said, it is good, and he rested. Jesus said, it is finished, now you can come rest too. Woo, you didn't like that good enough. Did you hear me, church? God said, it's good, and he rested. Jesus said, it's finished, and now you can rest. You get to come sit where God sits in the kind of full confidence he has in his own glory and goodness and might to accomplish every single thing he desires to do. The 
whole promised land experience was a lesson for God's people on what it truly means to rest in him. It doesn't mean we are free from challenges. It doesn't mean we will not be active in serving him and doing his will in the earth. But it means a constant and comprehensive understanding that he is in control and he is working for our good. And it means obeying him by faith. Even when all we can cling to is those baseline truths because what we're seeing around us doesn't seem to add up from our perspective. Right? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the people of God. We, we get across the Jordan. It's like, woo, land flowing with milk and honey. Boom, Jericho. This was not what I expected. <laughs> right? Well, expect it, man. <laughs> Because part of what it means to walk in the rest of God is to overcome challenges for the glory of God. By his strength and by his power. Jesus offers us this kind of rest without any confusion about it being tied to a geographical location. There's no need to cross the River Jordan to come to Christ. But we will have to cross the rushing river of our doubts and pride and sometimes apathy We'll have to cross that rushing river by faith in order to take hold of the freedom that Christ offers. When I say that Jesus offers us this rest without any confusion about it being tied to a geographic location, I'm thinking of Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You think Jesus knew about all this promised land stuff and what the writer of Hebrews is laying out in in chapter four? You think maybe he knew about all that? I think he did. What else did he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Now, you want to see something interesting about how much this writer in Hebrews is beaten on the drum of an evil, unbelieving heart keeping us out of that rest. What I just gave you in Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus saying, come to me all who are weary, take my yoke, it's light, it's easy, let me give you rest. Do you you know what Jesus was doing just before that? Let me read you something from Matthew. So that's Matthew 11, 28, I just read you. That's the one most of you know. Come to me all who are weary, I will give you rest. We know that verse, right? That's That's a bathroom mirror verse. That's a good one. We like that. But Matthew eleven twenty eight 20, eight verses earlier, he starts this. Then he began to reprimand the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not... Be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Sodom, it would, not have, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What's it sound like Jesus is doing? Right before he invites you to come enter into his rest, he's warning about an evil, unbelieving heart. He's warning all these cities where he went and did miracles that should have very well uh, sufficed as a sign that this guy's from God, at least, get you on that path to, to finally end up discovering he is God, right? He's got a word to all these cities. I came and did these miracles in you that should have been enough to cultivate 
faith in you to trust me. And it's not going to go good for you. Don't be like them. Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. But come to me, all who are weary. Quit, quit trying to... What does the weariness come from? The weariness comes from trying to do this on your own. Trying to do it on your strength. I mean, just, just it is flat out exhausting to be a human not connected to God. You ever thought about that? It's exhausting. We also have further proof here that the rest of God is not about leisure, uh, as if that's what's going to bring us joy and fulfillment. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary. I will give you rest. I like this verse so far. Take my yoke upon me. Or take my yoke upon you, right? Because my burden is light. Right after he invites you to rest, what's he invite you to do? Take an implement that holds farm animals to a plow and put it on. The rest of God is not about perpetual leisure. The rest of God is about working with God to accomplish God's will and do what it is you were made to do. You ever, you ever, have you ever experienced, man, you know, anyone ever come home from vacation more tired than when they left? And again, listen, I'm not coming for your vacations. For the love of God, just take, take them. I don't care. But the idea that oh, I'm so run down, I'm so tired, I feel so fatigued. I know what's going to fix it, a vacation. No, not, probably not, most of the time, particularly if it's soul fatigue, particularly if you're tired all the way, way deep down on the inside. It's that kind of stuff. What you need is to be clicked into the yoke next to Jesus and pulling with him because that is what is going to actually be rest for you. To be accomplishing what it is you were made to do. Again, vacation is fine. Because vacation can be to the glory of God, can it? I'm going to take time. I'm going to invest in friends or family. I'm going to take time to read or rest or, or I'm, I'm just going to explore God's creation and give him glory for it. All of these things are okay. But what, what I'm trying to warn you against is putting your hope in naps or vacation or leisure to solve the aching problem of this fatigue that's, that's trying to wear all of us down. There's only one place you're going to find rest. It's yoked up next to Jesus, pulling the plow and accomplishing his will. And the rest that Jesus offers is to throw off every other yoke and take on his. Because you might, in, in, your, in your sweet little head, think, well, hey man, look, I'm, I'm yoke free. I'm not, I don't have a yoke. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I'll talk to you about some of them in a minute. Just think, you can just rest with that for a second. I'm telling you, you do have a yoke. You're pulling a plow. The question is just, is, is Jesus pulling next to you? Which is the only way it's going to go good. And, and, and so, what, what, is, what does that yoke look like? What, let's give some shape to that. I'm just going to read you a bunch of scriptures. I'm trying to... I'm getting down into the nitty-gritty of what the rest of God is. And part of what the rest of God is, is to take on the yoke that Jesus said he offers for you to take. It's easy, it's comfortable, the burden is light. So what is that yoke? What does that yoke look like? Part of what that yoke looks like is operating in these truths. John 15, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Part of the rest of God is just believing right that, that right there on its face. That apart from him, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So you prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You start to understand some of what the yoke looks like? It's obeying his commandments. Why? Because you've remained in his love. Because you've accepted and believed the love he has for you and then let that shape the way you interact with the world around you and people. In case he didn't boil it down far enough for you, I'm going to keep going. This is my commandment. This is your master. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that a person will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends because all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. He's talking to his apostles. And then obviously because we have access to his word, we're getting in on it too. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain. So whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. In case you didn't hear me when I said it just 10 seconds ago, right? In case you want to really be sure what the summary here is. The yoke of God is about walking in love. That's the rest of God. What's the rest of God? It seems hard to define. Go to John 15. Go read what I just read you. And in case you are wondering if eternity is when we finally get to pitch our hammocks forever, I know some of you are like, okay, fine. I guess on earth he's right. God's not just going to grant me perpetual leisure because that's not good for me. But what about eternity? We've all heard someone say or said ourselves, yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll rest when I'm dead. We have this idea that it's, we're, you know, People, I don't know, think they're floating around, strumming a harp if they feel like it. Um, that's kind of what is going to go on in eternity. Revelation twenty two twenty two, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and, the lamb, and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads and they will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. Just, just reading that every once in a while is good for you. But I brought you here to see that in eternity, his bond servants will serve him. That's you and me. This perpetual leisure was never the plan. It's never going to be the plan. The rest of God is not stopping. It's not the stopping of good works. It is freedom from good works for bad reasons. It is freedom from self-reliance and feeble attempts at self-salvation. It is trust in our Father's goodness and power and it's eradication of our foolish attempts to be our own God. This is what the rest of God looks like. Rest from God comes by faith in God and trusting His Word. 
I'm going to break down hundreds of things I could have said, but just a few kind of tangible examples I want us to think about. Talking about the rest of God being freedom from doing good works for bad reasons. Because the rest of God gives us rest from the effects of pride. What are the effects of pride? It could take many forms, but it could be that I'm a fairly good person. I don't even know what all this need of God discussion is about. I don't know. I don't feel a great need for him. That's pride, friend. And the truth of God's word would like to crush that into little bitty bits and let it be blown away in the wind. Because you need him. He's the vine, you're the branches. Apart from him, you can do nothing. You are not good in and of yourself. You are a sinner, and without a savior, you'll be lost. But not only does the rest of God give us rest from the effects of pride, it also gives us rest from the effects of insecurity. What I would think is maybe the opposite end of that spectrum because there are those that stay away from God because they are so aware of their brokenness. They are so aware of how unlike him they are. And so in their insecurity, they would, they would stay away from God not believing he could possibly love them when the resounding message of the scriptures is that he does. And in case you didn't believe just his words, he showed you by Christ dying on the cross and rising from the grave so that you could be saved. There's rest. This rest of God is all-encompassing. We can have rest from the effects of pride. We can have rest from the effects of insecurity. We can have rest from the effects of overthinking. How many of us are often tempted, instead of coming, we, we come to our proverbial Jericho, we, we, we overwhelm ourselves by thinking it upside down and inside out, backwards and forwards, whatever the challenge is, or we, we're overthinking our relationships with other people, what other people might be. We, we will sit there and try to figure out what other people might be thinking. What they might be thinking? Sweet Jesus Almighty. That's just one example of ways that we can overthink, but that... This rest that God is calling us to, can, can, we can have rest from the effects of, of what that does to us. We can also have rest from the effects of underthinking. Because how many people have, have gotten sick of overthinking or just the way they're wired, they don't think about anything. They just go off emotion. We're going this way. Why? Because I feel like it. Anybody ever felt some effects of underthinking things? I have. We can have rest from those effects if our rest is in Christ. I don't have to be ruled by my emotions. I also don't have to sit and vex everything to the point where I'm sick and still haven't accomplished anything. We can have rest from the effects of working too much as if somehow all of our provision and hope is, is based on our ability to perform. And I'm thinking overworking in, in, in the most basic way you would think of it, which is to provide for your needs, all the way up to overworking and somehow think you're earning good favor with God. This is true in a natural and a spiritual sense, but we can have rest from the effects of working too much. Anybody ever felt the effects of working too much? You can also get rest from the effects of laziness. You might think, hold on, I thought, uh, talking about rest, this whole... 
Man, Hebrews 4 is about rest. I thought I was getting nap verses, and now you're telling me the rest of God is going to give me rest from laziness. That's what I want to do, man. I want to be lazy. Leave me alone. But, but here's the thing. Have you, have you ever really thought about, sat, and, and thought about the experience of what comes on the back end of deciding to be lazy? Has anyone ever felt the effects of laziness in their life? It never feels good to come to the end of a week of procrastination and putting things off and just, I don't feel like doing anything, so I'm just going to lay here. Do you ever get to the end of that and think, I feel really energized and great about my prospects for the future? No, you feel a, a multiple way worse than you did before. The rest of God is calling you to put the yoke of Christ on. And we can have rest from the effects of laziness. We can have rest from the effects of selfishness. Selfishness is a cancer that rots the soul, man. We can have rest from the effects of a savior complex. Let me preach to myself for a minute and you can listen if you'd like. I'm not Jesus. I need to know that about me. I'm not saving myself, but I for sure need to know that that I'm not saving anybody else. And I need to keep that in mind because I'm encountered constantly with situations where I'm tempted to think, I'm going to get in here and fix this. So when I was razzing you earlier about knocking your head against the door of Jericho, it's not because I just thought about that maybe that, you know, in some imaginative sense. I've got scars all over this head, Okay. And so as we put shape to, to all of this, you can, you can begin to see, man, this, this rest of God is comprehensive. This rest of God that I'm being invited into, it's trying to touch every single part of my life, all the way down to the center of who I am. And so you might be thinking, man, if, maybe if I would have just read this and walked away, maybe I would have thought, yeah, you know, I'm rest of God, yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing that. And maybe, maybe now you're going... I don't know, am I? How do, we, how do we figure it out? How do we assess it when I'm not standing here breaking down Hebrews 4 to you? Where, where, do, where do we go when, when later on I remember by the help of the Holy Spirit that the rest of God is this comprehensive invitation to, to relax like he did at the end of creation because of how much confidence we can have in who he is, how mighty and good and powerful, and when he does something, it's right. What, how, do, how do I know if I'm, I don't know if I'm doing that or not? Well, he anticipates the question and points us to the answer. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. How do I assess myself for this? The word of God will help you do it. It's like a surgical instrument that can come in, even though what we're talking about is deep stuff. It's soul stuff. It's all the way down to the parts of that we can't, we can't just, we, we can't navel gaze necessarily and figure it all out. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to even figure out where do I sit in the ability to, to, Take God up on the invitation to rest like him. Where, where am I at in that? How do I figure that out? What, what test is there that I can take? You bring yourself to the word of God. You let it do its great work upon you. You let this surgeon's scalpel come in and do what it does. Separate joint from marrow, even down to that level of detail, to the division of soul and spirit, able to do what? Judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because it's not just that I need to figure out, am I, am, I, am I thinking along the lines of what God's word calls me to as far as his rest, but what is my intentions for doing that? 
Because the whole big part of what the rest of God is, is freeing us from jacked up motives. Because on the outs, what is, and then what is he going to say? Don't, don't you understand that you could look like you are walking in the rest of God, which is faith-filled obedience to him, full confidence and assurance in God's goodness and power and his good intentions towards you. You could look like that from the outside. It, that's, that could be fake to the casual observer, but there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Gosh, God, can't you just give me a break? This isn't about God coming down on you. It's about him inviting you to the only thing that's actually ever going to get you where you want to go. Come rest, child. Come rest. Come put this yoke on your neck. Because you, aren't you done with the other ones? Haven't you tried them enough? Haven't you strained at that plow long enough? And felt that yoke cut into your neck? The pain that comes from all of it? There's only one thing you were made for. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy. There's only one place you're actually going to have rest. And it's next to your king. Letting him carry the load. And you just walking along cheerily. Saying, yeah, look at him do it. Where do I stand in all of this? The word of God is the thing going to help you. Go back to John 15. Go back through the entirety of God's word. Let it judge you. Let it help you. Because look, wherever you stand in this today, whatever, wherever you stand in walking in the fullness of the rest of God that we're being invite, invited to, I told you at the beginning. Because you could, maybe right now you're like, look man, I don't, even know, I don't even need to go read the Bible for myself. You've convinced me that I'm nowhere near where I should be walking in this rest of God. I sit here beside myself realizing I didn't even know what it meant and I'm for sure not walking in it. Maybe that's you right now. So what do you do? Do you panic? No, he, he anticipated that too. The writer already knew that you don't have this all figured out. <laughs> okay? By the Holy Spirit, he knew that. Thank God, because he goes on to say, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who yet, who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. You're being invited into this rest that is profound and goes all the way down to the core. Look, as, as it's unpacked for you here, he knows the effect it's going to have. It's going to lead us towards either helpful conviction or hurtful condemnation. And so, so the Holy Spirit leads him to, to just come and cut that condemnation's legs right out from under it. But don't forget, you have a faithful high priest that knows exactly what it's like to struggle like you do, that felt thirst and hunger, was tempted by the devil himself with power, was tempted to run from the will of God for him as he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. You don't have a high priest that doesn't understand you don't have an advocate with the Father that doesn't understand what it's like to be human and frail and jacked up. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to fight through that struggle. And that means he's going to have compassion on you. That means as you imagine how God feels about where you're at in this rest paradigm that we've unpacked today, it's not that he's, he, he wants to backhand you over this. Catch the tone. It's, it's not this it's this. Just come here. 
I know, I know you don't have, I know you can't do it. I know. Come here. Come here, child. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I don't know if that's right. Well, then let's just read the last verse and you'll know it is. Therefore, let us draw near. With what? With confidence. To where? The throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friend, my hope today is that you understand there's a, a distance between you and the full, perfect walking out of what it means to rest in God. I hope you realize right now in this moment you're in a time of need. And I hope right now, as we move towards communion, that you will approach the throne of grace for the mercy that you need and the help that you need. May God help us all. I want to rest in him to his glory and honor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for Hebrews 4. Thank you, Lord, uh, for the depth of what is here. Thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you illumine your people, that you bring revelation to us, that you teach us uh, things that are, are really too deep for us to grasp without your help. This is not something that we can just, we can grab hold of intellectually and fully get it. Lord, we need uh, our mind involved in this, surely, but Lord, this is something that touches the soul. These are spiritual truths. And uh, I thank you for your help in, in guiding us through them today. Lord, help us not be uh, foolish. Help us not be those that uh, hear the good news, but don't mix it with faith. Help us right now, Lord, by the power of your spirit to digest this good news, this, this call that you have laid out for us to rest in you, to rest like you did at the end of your creative efforts. Thank you, Lord. Your rest was not a result of fatigue. Your rest was in confidence and assurance. Lord, help our rest be out of confidence and assurance, not in ourselves, but in you. God, may you be glorified by this and may we grow and be more effective as your children and your disciples, your followers, your ambassadors, your ministers of reconciliation as we fulfill what it is you've called us to do in the earth. We love you, Master, but only because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.